Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis said that we do our best theology on our knees. And so that's the title to our sermon, and it's our big idea today. We do our best theology on our knees. What is theology? It's simply the study of God. It's what we think about God. It's what we say about God. It's what we say about what God has said in his word. So we do our best theology on our knees. We do our finest thinking about God when we are humble. When we humble ourselves under his word and we let it tell us what God is like. When we let the Bible form our opinions of God. When we let the scriptures in community shape what we think about God. And that's why we're, I'm doing a class on church history for dummies starting next week so that we can do uh, theology in community, so that we can read scripture in community. So if you want to know more about the history of the church, come next week at 6 p.m. We're going to read scripture together in community with one another, but also within the community of church history. We're going to answer questions like why and what forces led the early church to form uh, formal declarations about the Trinity? Why the creeds and the councils in church history? What was happening that made the church leaders come together and say, we need a formal definition and words about the person and work of Christ? So we want you to come out next Sunday evening at 6 p.m. If you have kids, Please sign up because we want to make sure there's enough child care. But there is child care. Come and we're going to discuss Revelation. Revelation is what God says. Theology is what we do. Theology and doctrine is what we say about what God has said. Theology is important because what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Some of you think it's your hair. That's not the most important thing about you. Some of you think it's how many followers you have on social media. That's not the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. As A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think of God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given moment may say or do, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. Before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere, there must first be a corrupting of her simple, basic theology. She simply gets a wrong answer to the question, What is God like? And goes on from there. The most important thought that you will ever think is what you think about God because that will determine every dimension of your life. What you think when you think of God will affect every area of your life. It'll affect your marriage. It'll affect your parenting. So if you want to think correctly about God, you have to humble yourself under his word and hear what he has to say about himself. 
You have to listen to his revelation of himself in his word. You have to bend your knees in order to do theology, in order to shape your view and shape your understanding of God. And that's what Solomon has been doing this whole time in 1 Kings chapter 8. So turn there in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. We've been looking at the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. And we've been there for quite a while. And your Bible probably naturally opens up to 1 Kings 8, right? Because we've been in 1 Kings chapter 8 since April 7th. So it's taken us two months to get out of 1 Kings 8. So what? Do you have some other place to be? Do you have some other spot in God's word that you need to be? Well, I have some good news for you. We're actually going to finish chapter 8 today. But your Bible will forever plop open to 1 Kings 8. Sorry, not sorry. And if you can recall, way back in verse 22, Solomon was standing when he blessed the nation and he began this prayer. And somewhere along the way, we don't know when, Solomon got down on his knees. He started this prayer on his feet, but then he ends up on his knees. Somewhere along the way, he was humbled by what he was praying about. And what he was praying about is the essence of our theology. And it's all wrapped up in that one word, covenant. Solomon has been rehearsing God's covenant promises all along in this prayer. He's wrapped his request in the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. How all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. How foreigners could come and glorify and enjoy God too. And as Solomon prays about the redemptive plan of God to bring all of the nations of the world to his throne, Solomon bends his knees in humility. Solomon knows that we do our best theology on our knees. So look at 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 54, and hear the word of the Lord. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day requires that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. So Solomon has been on his knees with his hands raised up to the Lord. He has opened the empty hands of faith. He has bent his knees. And now he is in a position to receive from the Lord. And that's how you receive things from the Lord. How you receive things from Jesus. You're on your knees. Your hands are raised open to receive from him. 
But now Solomon is standing in verse 54 as he prays again and as he blesses the nation. But those words there in verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given. Blessed be Yahweh. That's God's covenant name in all capital letters there. Blessed be Yahweh who has given. Those words can actually put you back on your knees. I'm surprised Solomon didn't fall to his knees again as soon as those words fell off his lips. Think about it. Yahweh gives. The Lord gives. That's humbling. The infinitely glorious God of the universe stoops down to sinners like us and he gives. He gives gifts to people who don't deserve it. So this whole chapter, this prayer, all these blessings spoken in this very long chapter, all of it is a tutorial in humility. Solomon is teaching us about humility. Those seven words, blessed be the Lord who has given, that's the beginning place of humility. Humility begins with those seven words. Humility doesn't begin with the letter H. Humility begins with Blessed be the Lord who has given. Humility begins with eyes raised to Jesus, knees bowed before Jesus, hands open to receive from Jesus. Listen, humility brings God close. Repentance brings Jesus close. The hope of the gospel is that as we humble ourselves Jesus draws near to us. And so the beginning place of humility is Jesus. It's crying out to Jesus. Let me ask you, do you want more humility in your life? Do you want to learn how to humble yourself? Well, if you can pronounce Jesus, then you're well on your way. If you can bend your knees, if you can raise your hands, then you are in the sweet spot to receive from Jesus. Jesus is drawn to humility. Jesus cannot resist humility. Jesus cannot stay away from a bended knee. Grace runs downhill. And Solomon knows this. It's why he got down on his knees sometime in the middle of verses 22 through 54. Somewhere along the way, Solomon got a glimpse of Yahweh and it made his knees buckle. You see, there's just something about seeing the Lord. There's just something about seeing Yahweh that has a way of knocking the breath out of you. There's just something about seeing God in all of his glory that knocks you down a size or two. There's just something about seeing Jesus that will knock your socks off. Catching a glimpse of the enthroned God kind of has a way of making your knees bend. That is, if you're willing to be humbled. That is, if you're willing to admit your weakness. But I suspect that you are like me, and at times you are allergic to weakness. Why are we this way? Because we don't like to admit that we need help. The old Adam dies a long, slow, painful death in our hearts, doesn't he? The old Adam's knees are old and they don't like to bend. We forget that helplessness 
is how the Christian life works. To be a Christian is to have knees that work well. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace is available for complete idiots who can bend their knees. That's good news for this church, isn't it? Because there's a lot of idiots here. And I'm the leader. There's a lot of idiots here. But God's grace is available for complete idiots who can bend their knees and say, Jesus, help. One of my common prayers is, Jesus, if you don't help me, I'm going to mess this thing up. I'll mess this thing. You know it. I know it. Please help. Grace flows downhill. Like a magnet, God's grace is drawn to a bended knee, to eyes that are lifted up, to empty hands that are held out. God's grace is attracted to weakness, attracted to helplessness, attracted to desperate people. Jesus loves to show up and help desperate people. And that's good news for misfits and failures like us, right? So Solomon is humbled because Yahweh gave rest to the nation. Listen again to verse 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. So Solomon is reminding all the people gathered at the temple dedication that Yahweh has been faithful to all of his promises. He promised them rest. He promised them that a time would come when they could rest from war, rest from worrying about their enemies attacking them in the middle of the night, and that time has now come. In fact, Solomon repeats something here that Joshua mentioned at the end of his life. Solomon quotes Joshua, not one word has failed of all his good promise. Joshua said these same words, Joshua said the same thing three times. Joshua 21.45 and two times in Joshua 23.14. Not one word has failed. No promise of God has failed. All that God promised has come true. If verse 56 doesn't give you goosebumps, you need to check your pulse. If you don't think this verse is dripping with excitement, you might need to get on your knees and do some theology. If your jaw doesn't drop when you read verse 56, my recommendation is that you just repeat it over and over and over again until your heart believes it. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. Not one word has failed of all his good promise. In Hebrew, it begins with the words not failed for emphasis. You might repeat that over and over. Not failed, not failed, not failed. And if you want to get crazy, you can repeat it in Hebrew. Let me teach it to you. Lo nafal, lo nafal, lo nafal. The Hebrew word here for failed, nafal, is the same word that is used several times in the book of Esther at key moments. It's used of Haman and Esther 3.7 when he casts lots. In other words, he casts the lots and the lots fail to the ground. And when the king instructed Haman in Esther 6.10 that he needed to honor his enemy Mordecai, the king told Haman literally in Hebrew, do not let anything fall that you have said. In other words, don't fail to do anything that you have recommended to me. Go and honor this man. Also, when Haman rushed home to his wife Zeresh, she told him that he was beginning to fall 
before Mordecai. And then it's used to describe Haman in that climactic moment when he falls on top of Esther when she was on the couch. So in other words, Solomon is telling us that God's promises don't fall down. They don't topple over. They don't trip. They don't stumble. They don't crash to the ground. They don't fall and skin their knees. God's promises are firm. They remain standing. They aren't moved by anything. No situation you can ever experience, no circumstance can cause God's promises to come crashing down to the ground. And that might be enough to get you through to next Thursday. This prayer of Solomon would be enough to hold the original audience over as they sat in exile in Babylon, waiting for the promise to come true for them to return home. And it can be enough to hold you over until next Thursday. There are no falling words, no failing words in Yahweh's vocabulary. There's only standing words. And God's promises are not kind of like a, a, I was thinking about this this morning. God's promises are not like a weatherman trying to give a report as a hurricane's coming ashore. You know, you're like wondering how they're standing. God's promises are not like, you know, they're not falling, but boy, look at them move. No, God's promises are firm. They stand. Nothing can knock them over. Nothing can move them in the slightest. There's only standing words in God's vocabulary. Standing words that we can stand on and find assurance and peace. And this book right here, the Bible, God's word, is full of them. Yahweh doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't fail. You do. I'm going to let that linger for a minute. You do. And I do. I failed a lot this weekend. Oh, I was grumpy with my family. We fail all the time. We're failures, and not one good promise of God ever fails for failures like us. And when that truth hits you upside the head, it might make you get down on your knees. It might make your dentures fall out. I don't know. Either way, it ought to give you assurance. And to quote Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis again, he said, How do you spell assurance? C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. How do you spell assurance? Covenant. Everything that Solomon is praying about here is all about assuring God's people. He's speaking of God's covenant with Abraham. How do you assure God's people? You remind them that Yahweh keeps covenant. Solomon is speaking about and praying to the covenant-keeping God. I mean, this is covenant theology at its finest right here. He's assuring the nation that God's promises never fail, never fall to the ground. But that's where we should be when we talk about God. On the ground, if you will, on our knees. We do our finest theology on our knees. And faith does its best work when it's on its knees. Faith does its best praying when it's on its knees. And so Solomon prays in faith that Yahweh would be with the nation and never leave them or forsake them. Again, he's quoting passages in Deuteronomy 
and Joshua that use this same phrase. I mean, where did Solomon learn that Yahweh is a God who never leaves nor forsakes his people? Where did he learn? From his daddy, from King David. In fact, that's exactly what David told his son Solomon as he passed the kingship on to his son. Listen to 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. This is just normal, very normal Old Testament theology. This is like what we should all take away from the Old Testament when we read it. It's found in Deuteronomy. It's found in Joshua. Heck, it's all over the Old Testament. This is vintage Old Testament. Vintage Old Testament theology. It's the Old Testament confession of faith, if you will. It's the Old City Catechism. And I just made up question 18 of the Old City Catechism, which says this. Why can we be strong and courageous and not be afraid? Answer, because the Lord our God is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. Solomon's prayer is just vintage Old Testament theology. Solomon's prayer is proof that he was catechized by his dad, King David. Solomon memorized question 18 of the Old City Catechism, and now it's just seeping out of his prayers. You might want to memorize a few verses that Solomon's prayer is based on. Like Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 27.14, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. Those verses just might keep you sane until next Thursday. And even after that. And people think the Old Testament is boring. Really? Man, there's life right there in those three verses. If you struggle to memorize scripture, just take those three. There's life there. The Old Testament is not boring because it just told me in those three verses that God is with me wherever I go. The Old Testament is not boring. This is vintage Old Testament theology here. This is vintage Yahweh. This is what the Old Testament catechism looked like. This is the Old Testament creed. To quote one of my other favorite Old Testament scholars, Alec Motier, he said this. This is the purpose of a creed. Scaffolding to hold us upright when the storm comes. That's what Solomon is praying for here. He wants this vintage creed that Yahweh is with us and will never leave us. He wants that truth to be scaffolding for the nation of Israel and to hold them up, to hold them up even when they're on their knees, especially when they're on their knees. We do our best catechism. We do our best catechesis when we are on our knees. And we do our best and finest theology when we're on our knees. What we think about God, 
and what we say about God. We do that the best when we're on our knees and we're humble. But Solomon is not done praying this blessing over the nation. Solomon may not be on his knees anymore, but his finest theology continues to spill out of him. Solomon knows the human heart, and so he prays in verse 58 that Yahweh would incline their hearts to his, that they might walk in his ways. As I said last week, Solomon has no hope in the human heart. So he's praying, God, you've got to keep us. Solomon is asking the Lord to empower them to walk in his commandments. Solomon knows that if Yahweh does not intervene, it will be a train wreck. Solomon knows that not one of God's good promises will fail, but Solomon knows that he might. And he eventually does, which we'll see in chapter 11. Solomon knows that not one of God's good promises will fail, but the nation of Israel might. Solomon knows that what Paul says in Romans 3, when he quotes Psalm 14, that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Solomon says, I believe that. And that's why he's asking the Lord to capture their hearts and not let, let them drift. But Solomon is not only concerned about what's happening in his heart, he's not just concerned about what's happening in the nation of Israel. There's also an end time dimension found in verse 60. Solomon says that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Solomon understands the end times, eschatology, that all people from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue will bend their knees before Yahweh, will bend their knees before Jesus. Solomon knows that Yahweh is not just interested in Israel. Solomon knows that Yahweh wants his glory to go public, to be all over social media. Solomon knows that Yahweh wants the nations to come and enjoy him. So he prays that Yahweh's glory would seep out of the temple and flow to the ends of the earth. But Solomon is also keenly aware that Yahweh is not just the Lord of the last days, he's the Lord of every day. Jesus is not just the Lord of the last days, he's the Lord of every day. In verse 59, Solomon petitions Yahweh to let his prayers linger before the door, the Lord, day and night, to work for the cause or the good of the people, he says, as each day requires. Literally, the phrase, as each day requires in Hebrew, is this, a matter of a day in its day. What Solomon is telling us is that the Lord is there in every moment of every day for his people. Whatever matter... Whatever thing comes up in a day, Solomon is saying the Lord is there. A matter of a day in its day. Driving to work, Yahweh is with you. Washing dishes, Yahweh is with you. Changing diapers, Yahweh is with you. Brushing your teeth, Yahweh is with you. Yahweh is with you every moment of every day. And yet he is also the God who knows the end from the beginning. Jesus knows when you were born. And he knows what day and at what time you will die. And he will be there on that final day when all nations bow before him. And yet he's also the God that will be for you on the second Thursday in June. 
He's the God of today, the God of next Thursday, and the God of the final day. Might I suggest you turn to him in faith if you don't know him? He knows what day and at what time you will die. And then you'll have an appointment with him. And you will give an account of your life. You can't cancel this appointment. You will give an account of your life. And let me tip you off early. If you don't know Jesus, you won't be able to stand on that day. Your knees will buckle when you see him in all of his glory. And you will be scared to death. And if you don't repent of your sins, and that just means that you are aware that you have offended God by the way that you have been living, by who you are, you've been living for yourself, and you want to change your mind and, and live for him and embrace his free gift. If you don't repent, you don't fess up and run to Jesus and believe in him, then on that day when your knees buckle because you see Jesus in all his glory, you will not survive his infinite scrutiny. And you will be punished in hell for eternity. And I don't want that for any of you who don't know Jesus. I don't want that for any of you. I'm just teaching what the Bible teaches and what God says in his word. Might I suggest you turn to him in faith if you don't know him? You bend your knees, you look up to Jesus, you open the empty hands of faith to receive his forgiveness. It will absolutely be the best decision you ever made. What are you waiting for? You can cry out to him right now and just say, have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, for I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord Jesus, for I am a sinner. For the rest of us who know Jesus, that final day will not strike fear in our hearts. The final day when we see Jesus will not strike fear in our hearts. We will stand before God covered in the righteousness of his son and it will be a day of rejoicing. We'll give account and as soon as the books are open, we'll hear a voice say when they call our name, I don't know what it's going to be like, this one is in union with my son. His record is perfect. Her record is perfect. And then Jesus will come and greet us. I love the way Lori Ferguson Wilbert describes what it will be like. She said this, when you meet Jesus face to face, he's not going to be holding a checklist of all the things you maybe should have accomplished or done, but just didn't. He's going to be holding your face in his hands saying, well done, faithful one. You made it at last. I almost couldn't wait. I don't know about you, but I'm rarely compelled by you should do or have done and almost always compelled by that image of being face-to-face with Jesus. We don't know what the coming weeks are going to hold any of us, but some of us are going to need him terribly. We don't know what the coming weeks or months may hold, but some of us here are going to need Jesus desperately. Maybe even this week, disaster of some kind will strike. And yet the God who is in control of the final day is the God who can be there for you on Thursday of next week. And we get a sneak preview of what that final day in all eternity is going to be like in the last five verses of chapter 8. Look at verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. 
The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. Do you remember where all of this started? Way back at the beginning of chapter 8, And then when Solomon's praying, he started on his feet and then he ends up on his knees. He confessed his need of Yahweh. He confessed the nation's need of Yahweh. Solomon humbled himself. And now they end chapter 8 with joy. Joy is the finish line of this long chapter. And maybe you're full of joy because we finally finished chapter 8. Joy is the finish line of this chapter, not because it's so long. Joy is the finish line because Solomon and company end up celebrating and enjoying their forgiveness. That the Lord can't remember their sins anymore. They end up celebrating. And there were so many sacrifices that they had to slaughter sheep on the ground in the middle of the court and not just on the altar. Their joy knows no bounds. A long chapter full of too many Hebrew words to count and too many sheep to count ends with a note of joy. And so if joy is the finish line, then the starting blocks are humility. If joy is the finish line of this chapter, then the starting blocks are repentance. Joy begins with humility and repentance. Joy begins with humility and repentance. Those who bend their knees, those who sow in tears, those who repent, they shall reap with shouts of joy. That's the gospel. That means then, Christian, that on that final day when you meet Jesus face to face, he is not going to be holding a checklist of all the things you maybe should have accomplished or done but just didn't. He's going to be holding your face in his hands and saying, well done, faithful one. You made it at last. I almost couldn't wait. That's why Solomon and crew are celebrating here. That's why Solomon prayed that the nations would also get in on this goodness because this is what our hearts were made for, to glorify and to enjoy God forever to love God, to be with him forever, to have Jesus hold our face in his hands and say, well done, faithful one, you made it at last. I almost couldn't wait. That ought to make you fall to your knees. And why bend down like that? Because Jesus paid it all. Because he humbled himself and bore our sins on the cross so that we could stand in God's presence He took our blame. He was punished for us so that we could forever sit under the smile of our Heavenly Father. Not His frown, so that we could sit under the smile of our Father. Listen, Christian, in Christ, God is pleased with you. Right now, Christian, if you are in Christ, in union with Him, God is pleased with you. Grace is the good news of the gospel that God is always holding on to us. 
We just heard a song playing yesterday in our house, and it said, I'm holding on to God. And I told Heather, I'm not holding on to God. I can't. I've tried holding on to God. I fail all the time. He's holding on to me. I said, I'm like a limp body in his hands. He's the one doing all the holding. I'm just a mess. He's always holding on to us. No matter how much we fail him, no matter how fickle we are, his love endures forever. The gospel is a promise. No matter how weak we are, how much we fail, how bad our love stinks, how fickle we are, God will not let us go. The gospel declares to unfaithful sinners that we live in the perpetual favor and unabated delight of God. All because of Jesus. So God is pleased with you, Christian. That ought to make you fall to your knees. Because you were pretty bad this week. And God is pleased with you in Christ. We also do our best Lord's Supper on our knees. Think about that. We do our best Lord's Supper on our knees. This table should humble us. On the cross, Jesus took the blame for all the shameful and God-dishonoring things that we do and have done. And so when we come to this table, we should be humbled. But the good news of the gospel is that when we come to this table, Jesus comes to you and me and he says, you bring your internet history and I'll bring the bread and wine. That's what we celebrate here today with the Lord's Supper. You bring your internet history. Jesus says, I'll bring the bread and wine. You bring your past, that thing that haunts you and you can't seem to shake. And Jesus says, I'll bring the bread and wine. You bring how you yelled at your kids as you got ready for church this morning. I'll just let that linger for a minute. None of you parents know what I'm talking about, right? You bring how you yelled at your kids this morning. Get in the car. We're going to worship Jesus. Good morning, brother. How are you? Fine. You bring that. Jesus will bring the bread and wine. Or, in our case, the juice. You bring that bitterness that's eating away at you, that hatred, that jealousy, that resentment. And Jesus brings the bread and wine. We come here to celebrate forgiveness, to sub- celebrate covenant. Horatius Bonar, an old dead Scottish pastor, said, It is with our sins that we go to God, for we have nothing else to go with that we can call our own. All that we can bring to God that we can call our own is our sin. That's it. Jesus receives it. It's why he came. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. That ought to make your knees buckle. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at how good and kind and tender you are and loving and faithful because we choose a million things every day to love and cherish and treasure and we turn away from you all the time and you're so loving and kind. How incredible must be the sacrifice of your son that you welcome us time and time again that you welcome us to this table today. And so we humble ourselves, Father, and we fess up and admit that we are sinners and we repent. And Lord, there's no way we could go through everything that we've done this week 
this month, this year, we just say, Lord, we are sinners. Have mercy on us. Forgive us, Lord. We come here to celebrate like Solomon and company, to celebrate that you can't remember our sins anymore and to give you great glory for that. Would you feed us now? Would you strengthen us with your grace as we feed on Christ by faith? May the Holy Spirit renew us today. We would leave here full of joy, just like Solomon sent people away, Lord, that we would be sent away with joy because of who you are, because of what Jesus has done for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.